Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Professor Jeffrey Sachs, and this is really a fascinating conversation, and it doesn't get very wonky. We talk about all sorts of things from sustainable investing to where President Trump should be spending his infrastructure dollars. Uh, There are so many things that Professor Sachs has experience and expertise in. If you are at all interested in macroeconomics, in sustainable investing, in a variety of issues that lie at the intersection of politics, technology, and economics, then I think you'll find this conversation quite fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Professor Jeffrey Sachs. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia University. I am going to give you a greatly abbreviated version of his CV, otherwise we'll have no time left for questions. He is the university professor at Columbia. It is the highest rank the university bestows on any faculty member. Uh, He is an economist, director of the Earth Institute. He's written numerous New York Times bestsellers, The End of Poverty, Commonwealth and the Price of Civilization. His most recent book is Building the New American Economy, Smart, Fair, and Sustainable. He has advised countries such as Bolivia, Poland, Slovenia, Estonia, and Russia as to how to become market-based economies. I can describe his background forever, but rather than just dwell on his advice to the World Bank, to the Organization of Economic Cooperation, to the World Health Organization. Why don't I just say, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, welcome to Bloomberg. Hey, Barry. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So uh, you, the, our timing couldn't be more auspicious because we've entered a uh, somewhat new era, it seems, following the election and questions about jobs and productivity and sustainability and inequality are everywhere. So, so let's let's jump right into this. Uh, in in one of your books, you referenced that you had an economic vision beyond GDP. What does that mean? We're pretty rich in this country, and uh, if you just look at our total output, uh, our gross domestic product, and uh, divide it by the population, uh, we're at uh, some. Uh, $55,000 or so per person, pretty darn good. It's risen basically uh, three times uh, in the last half century, and yet we don't feel so good. And and this is a a paradox. Uh, It actually even has a name in academic economics. It's called the Easterlin Paradox, uh, named after a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who tracked the data And he looked at how Americans uh, think about their happiness over the last 50 years. And the economy says the economy is going up, but the happiness is stuck. And I just looked at the very most recent data. And not surprisingly, the happiness is actually going down. It's not even treading water anymore. So America 
Americans feel that we're off track. Uh, there's a lot of unhappiness, disgruntlement. We're at each other's throats. We don't trust our government. We don't trust each other. And that means that we're not getting what we would have expected to get out of all this affluence. And in this sense, since an economy is basically to serve the human purpose, it's not to make numbers in a table of GNP. It's to help make us prosperous, healthy, uh, happy, and it's not happening right now. We need to look more deeply at why. So so let's discuss that. Uh, Thomas Piketty's book really resonated with a lot of a lot of people. Uh, it was really a very deep dive into economic inequality. But when we look at the data, inequality has been expanding for decades now. Why has it taken so long for this to reach a boiling point? Well, I think it is uh, like a boiling point, which is that you can uh, put uh – the pot on the stove and for a while you don't see any bubbles and then it uh, it does start boiling and boiling the I, frog is I, that a- i think that uh, exactly you know you warm uh, the frog who just sits in the water until they're uh, they're gone and i think that for us uh we see really now for almost four decades a rise of inequality and for a while we were just into the greed is good category mm-hmm. in, in the 80s. That was a new boom period. And then with the end of the Cold War, we thought, okay, now we're going to have our big peace dividend. And then we went back to war, war, war uh, in uh, at the start of this century. And yet all through this, the economy has expanded, uh, technology has improved, and inequality has widened. And more and more Americans say they don't like government, they don't trust each other, and they're not so happy. So it's really, in in this sense, a very peculiar, uh, unsatisfying moment for America. And I think uh, the election of Donald Trump, which is a signal of a, the most divided we've ever been in, in the last century, uh, is really making us take uh, another look at all of this. I I just read a fascinating study, and I'm sure I'm getting this slightly wrong. Something like a third of the opponents of Obamacare don't realize the ACA and Obamacare are the same thing. How much of this discontent is genuine, people are actually hurting, and how much of it is a product of people being either uninformed or misinformed? I think that uh, the discontent is real. Uh, I think the mood is surly. We clearly have a real cultural divide in this country because uh, when you look at the election map, the big cities by and large uh, go for the Democrats and the rural areas and uh, the smaller towns and the suburbs uh, more or less go for the Republicans. And that's not true just in the most recent election. So that division is is really quite real. The perceptions of the world are quite different. Um, and why we're not able to use our clear, much greater wealth, uh, our ability to solve problems, to uh, tamp this down, why we are at the boiling point is a bit of a mystery. Not every country is like ours that is at each other's throats. We're not alone in this, though, by the way. It's Brexit and 
Now uh, France the, with Le Pen. Exactly. All of that signals that this cultural divide is real. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia University. His latest book, and I'm grabbing it right here, Building the New American Economy, Smart, Fair, and Sustainable, with a foreword by Bernie Sanders. So let's talk a little bit about the new American economy. Uh, as much as we've been hearing that globalization is the enemy, how accurate is that compared to the rise of robots, the rise of artificial intelligence? It's been famously said by some venture capitalists, software is eating everything. How much of this is technology and how much of this is really globalization? Globalization is not the enemy. Globalization is the reality. Mm -hmm. uh, we have global scale production systems, global scale payment systems, global scale communication systems, global scale internet. And it's going to be that way because it's just so productive. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what makes a, a world economy that's now $125 trillion. Uh, and that means a, a world economy uh, that is uh, about uh, $17,000 per person on this planet. Really amazing, unbelievable productivity. And that's why globalization is not going away because we depend on it for prosperity. How much Glo has technology enabled globalization? Well, technology is everything, even uh, something that one might not even think of as technology, uh, a uh, standardized uh, container mm -hmm. uh, that you can uh, load and unload. That was an invention uh, in uh, the early 1960s. So, there's which, a wonderful book called The Box. That's the history of- You got it. it, it it's really quite fascinating. And, and uh, you know that seems pretty basic, but it was the ability to standardize international trade that was fundamental for the rise of East Asia. But more than that, of course, uh, computer-assisted design and manufacturing and, and then uh, ubiquitous uh, broadband and standardization of information systems and digitization are, of course, transforming the whole world, transforming every sector of the world, disrupting every sector of the world on the whole, adding to our well-being and our productivity, but not uniformly. That's a big part in any technology revolution. Uh, you have people that are left behind, people who are put unemployed. Uh, and uh, the decency of a normal society is to say we continue with progress, but we make sure that we don't open up large pockets of poverty. And so you're really addressing something right here that is key to the discontent that's out there. What is the proper role of government in supporting a, a, a middle American blue collar working class that are losing their jobs to technology. What's the proper response? The proper response, which should have been a response already 30 years ago, mm -hmm. is uh, we're here to help with retraining, with reskilling, uh, with the uh, tuition coverage, uh, with the uh, support for your children to get a decent education. That's what normal, uh, good, societies do. I would put um, Canada in that list. I'd put uh, countries in Scandinavia, I'd put Germany uh, in that list in recent decades. In the United States, we had a an odd uh, lurch from that. And that started uh, on January 20, 
1981, Ronald Reagan uh, stepped up uh, to take the oath, and he said, government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And we had, for the first time in the United States uh, in modern American history, a president who said, uh, I'm here to preside over the dismantling of basic functions of government because government's the problem. I think it was a lousy diagnosis back in 1981. We've lived with it for 35 years, and uh, we're in our 36th year of that right now, and I think it's a big mistake. It, it appeals, though, for one basic overwhelming reason. Everybody in our country loves tax cuts. Sure. And so if you say we, we're going to cut government down to size, we're going to give you our umpteenth middle-class tax cut, uh, everyone jumps up and says, huzzah, and this is really our big problem. I, I say that fundamentally America is failing the marshmallow test, uh, you know, the famous uh -huh. test of uh, can we delay gratification for a moment? Well, clearly the richest people in our country can't because they're so desperate for their next tax cut. Uh, and uh, a lot of other people are enticed to believe uh, we're going to give you another tax cut, but what we're really doing is gutting the budget so that the budget can no longer provide decent education, it can no longer guarantee basic health care, it can no longer provide uh, child care, uh, it can't guarantee, as so many countries do, paid vacation, which for Americans, oh my God, how could it be? But most high-income countries in the world have guaranteed paid vacation. Most high-income countries in the world have guaranteed maternity, even... Uh, father's uh, time off for, for newborns. It's decent. You know, you'd think, okay, we worked so hard as a civilization for hundreds of years to get this wealth. Let's enjoy it a little bit. Let the mom stay home with the kids. What I, what I find, pay for it. What I find so fascinating about the tax cut issue is I don't ever recall there being a schism amongst the top 1% of the top 1% on issues like tax cuts. So you have on one side of the aisle, Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and a run of left of center hedge fund managers who are worth billions who say, you know, I, I pay a lot of taxes, but I also, as was famously said, uh, Taxes are the price of living in a civilized society. You know, they can't spend this money. So they're trying to figure out ways to give away billions of dollars. Right. They don't need more tax cuts. It's uh, not going to do anything for their incentives, for their work effort, for their creativity. Uh, these people want to make a mark on the world. It's not uh, that they need right. another billion dollars. They're trying to form new companies, new technologies, uh, uh, anticipate uh, the new ways to do things. And they're saying, really, stop it already. Of course, others are saying, my God, I'm only... 23rd on the Forbes list. I got to get to 16 on the Forbes How list. How could you show your face at the club as number 23? Exactly. You know, that's, I, that's I only have $7 billion net <laughs> worth. You know, uh, uh, my friend uh, down the block uh, has uh, $23 billion. It's absurd. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that is a big part of it. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Jeffrey Sachs. He holds the title of university professor. It's the highest rank Columbia bestows on any faculty member. He's written multiple bestsellers, most recently, Building the New American Economy. Let's talk a little bit about 
the global fight against poverty and hunger. Um, you were at Harvard for a long time. One of your colleagues, Steven Pinker, wrote a, a wonderful book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. And within it, he describes how despite the terrible parade of news we see, there's never been a better time to be a human on this planet. Uh, inequality on a global basis has shrunk. Poverty has shrunk. Starvation has shrunk. War, wars are, are less and less people are dying in wars than ever before. Violent crime ha has fallen to record lows. The number of children uh, who are nutritionally deficient are at all-time lows. So what does this say about the fight against global hunger and, and starvation? It is indeed good news. Uh, the only footnote I would add to the list is that um, on war, my God, we're so bad at peace that uh, don't believe trends, just keep fighting against uh, new wars. Uh, but on all the other trends, I think they're real, and I do think they're long-term. I wrote a book in 2005 called The End of Poverty, where I said we could end extreme poverty on the planet in our generation. That's indeed uh, what the trends show. For me, it's uh, not only good news, though, it's a little bit of anguish, because when you see that suffering can be stopped because we have the tools to do it, and it's not stopped, even though the numbers of those trapped in poverty are going down, you perhaps feel a little bit more anguish, and that's how mm -hmm. I feel about it. We have uh, nearly a billion people still in extreme poverty as a share of the world population. Uh, the estimates are that it's around 10% of, of the world population used to be 15 right and now higher. it used to be 90% uh, back uh, before the industrial revolution back, sure. uh, and uh, i know that we could bring it down to essentially zero in a short period of time how would we how would we do that i was involved over the last 15 years in something called the millennium development goals sure. which were the un's objectives to fight poverty i recommended back in uh, 2000 and 2001 that we establish a new fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. I was uh, delighted to hear just yesterday talking to some of the experts that there are now 18 million people around the world alive because they're getting access to the medicines that fight uh, the AIDS virus. Am I misremembering? Did you work with the Bush administration AIDS program in Africa? Absolutely. That was a wildly successful program, and, and wasn't it? By the it? way, very interesting because uh, I went in to see Condoleezza Rice in 2001, February, uh, at the National Security Council in the Situation Room of the White House, and I pitched a U.S. program for $3 billion a year to fight AIDS. And uh, she was very nice, had the NSC there, asked me back in a couple couple weeks after that. I came back a second time. And then uh, the president's economic advisor walked me out of the West Wing and said, Jeff, you know, that was pretty good, uh, pretty <laughs> persuasive, but don't hold your breath. You know, this is just not our thing. Right. Well, it turned out to be the president's thing, by the mm -hmm. way. Uh, I don't think he came into office knowing that he was going to be the great AIDS champion. But, but by some measures, it's the most successful program under the Bush administration. It surpassed all its targets. Not only did it work, but the president said in a op-ed uh, afterwards, said, this is my proudest legacy. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. It's great. And so Obama, I went in to see uh, early in 2009, and I pitched a similar thing. And 
he said, no, we don't have the votes. And I was pretty disappointed, by really? the way, you know, because it's not a matter of votes. It's a matter of leadership. Mm-hmm. And uh, strangely enough, neither Clinton nor Obama really did much in uh, international right. assistance. George W. Bush, who I disagreed with on a lot of other things, became the champion of fighting disease abroad. With Trump, you know, he comes in uh, with the reportedly pretty surly attitude towards aid, but you never know because he may say, and rightly so, by the way, that for a small amount of money, we could ensure that kids everywhere are in school and don't get radicalized. That would be a really smart investment. Few National security do- component Few billion dollars, and you'd be able, if we pooled together, say, with China, with Germany, with others, into a global fund for education— we could stop the child soldiers. We could stop the radicalization. We could stop the fact that kids are growing up without schooling and therefore can't get jobs in the 21st century. I think you have a trip coming up to D.C. soon. Uh, well, I'm ready to go any moment. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Jeffrey Sachs uh, of Columbia University, formerly of Harvard. And let's talk a little bit about um, infrastructure, sustainability, and and some changes that are taking place. Let's start with infrastructure. We heard from both candidates during the election that they each wanted a trillion-dollar infrastructure. If you were tapped by the president to say, Jeff, I need some advice as to where to spend a trillion dollars on, on U.S. infrastructure, what sort of advice would you give him? I would uh, tell him how to get good advice because what I would do is uh, say, uh, let's go uh, down the block from the White House to the National Academy of Engineering. Uh-huh. We have the world's leading engineers and get some really good advice on connectivity, on smart uh, grids, on renewable energy, of which our country has unbelievable amounts from onshore wind, offshore wind, solar power, hydropower. Uh, and let's make a system design. You know, when I was uh, growing up, which is a long time ago, uh, the interstate highway system was being built. That was in the 50s uh, under Eisenhower? That started in the 50s. Uh, I was one year old when uh, that was uh, first voted. It went on for 30 years. To me, very interesting, because what do we do in our country anymore that takes 30 years? But that was an important investment. It went through Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter. Uh, it was basically a across all the political lines, we paid for it with a gasoline tax and said, we want to have a, a modern highway system. Well, now now, now we need a modern grid. We need to bring the wind power from the Dakotas to Chicago, to the population centers. We need to bring the immense solar energy of the Mojave in the American Southwest to California, to Texas, uh, to the rest of the country. We need to bring fantastic offshore wind of the American Northeast to uh, New York City. They just sunk a few uh, offshore winds far off the coast of of Montauk recently. It's the first major wind project uh, in the Northeast. This is great stuff. And one of the companies that's going to be doing it in our neighborhood is Statoil, which is interesting because it's the oil and gas company of Norway. Uh-huh. But they learned how to drill offshore well enough that they now how to know how to put in uh, 
offshore wind with that same uh, manufacturing uh, and construction expertise. So they're going into the wind business, so, which so is I, fantastic. And the problem is I, the president, unfortunately, is uh, kind of stuck in 19... 80s infrastructure. When he thinks of infrastructure, he apparently thinks of uh, the Dakota uh, pipeline. pipeline and he thinks of Keystone Pipeline. That's the last thing we need in the 21st century. We just don't need that stuff. That's billions of dollars down the drain. Uh, we need 21st century infrastructure. Obama made the same mistake, by the way, because in 2009, he said we need infrastructure, but it should be shovel ready. And I thought, oh my God, you know that's okay for the uh, WPA in 1933, but <laughs> but why do we need shovel ready infrastructure? We need uh, fast rail, which is going to take years to plan and design. Well, they never did their homework. So let me push back a little bit on some of the things that have been going on. The idea of these things being a multi-decade economic multiplier like the the interstate highway system makes a ton of sense it doesn't seem the political political will the marshmallow test as you described it is there and look no further than the gasoline tax which was instituted by Eisenhower for the highway trust system it's been frozen i want to say 1993 or 99 it you got it exactly uh, right uh, it has been frozen since uh, I think it's 1992 at about 18 cents a gallon, not inflation adjusted, nothing. 25 Un years ago. Unbelievable. And and that trust, the highway trust fund is broke. It's depleted. And now the other th issue I have to raise politically is we've seen certain states like Arizona and New Mexico, Nevada and Florida. Some of them have introduced legislation. And I believe Nevada and Florida both have... Um, Nevada passed it. I don't know if it if it passed in Florida. That rolled back the mandate that consumers could put solar on their roof and sell it back to the utility. Are we going to see each of the states succumb to the persuasive abilities and money of local utilities and and make this a stillborn technology? It's even more crazy because uh, all these places are in. A desperate risk of climate change, whether it's rising sea levels, which would submerge a lot of Florida. Right, or, Florida's or whether, a goner, by the way. Whether it's a drought, exactly. Whether you it's write a, it off. you know massive drought or what happened uh, in uh, in in our state uh, with Hurricane uh, Superstorm Sandy, um, and we just to clean up is billions of dollars, and to take what's called adaptive measures is mm -hmm. price tag of forty billion dollars. And we're paralyzed because who's going to pay for that? So I think this question of long-term thinking probably is America's weakest point right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the first thing that I would say to our leadership, understand what made America great in the past, whether it's uh, the highway system or going to the moon. The president, John F. Kennedy, did not say we'll go to the moon next month. Right. He also didn't say we'll go to the moon next century. He gave a decade timeline. And in, amazingly, they, they made that timeline. We need bold goals, transformative but they're not going to happen overnight, and they require planning, and they require the best of our engineering, and they require the politicians to get out of the way and say, we'll help fund this 
But let's get serious thinking involved of what we really want in our energy system, what we really want in our transport, what information technology makes possible, because our cities should look completely different let's, in the let's, next 30 years. Let, let's talk about the electrical grid, because there's a strong argument to be made that it is a national security issue if our grid, forget that it's patchy and subject to brownouts and blackouts, if it can be hacked. Do we have a national security problem with a grid that is outdated, outmoded, and vulnerable? Well, we certainly do, and I'm uh, hardly the cyber uh, warfare expert, except that all those that I know say we have a problem, everybody has a problem, and we better not uh, go into uh, uh, into cyber war because there won't be anything left because we depend on these information networks and our systems depend on it. Of course, we need to take defensive actions. We need to have workarounds. The whole idea of the internet originally was a resilient system that sure. could, uh, where computers could be connected even if uh, one part of the network goes down. So there are things to do. Uh, sustainability. But I do think it would be much smarter if we work together with the Chinese, work together with the Europeans, and said we want smart systems that can save us all from climate change, in which we're in a uh, in, in a way also protecting ourselves mutually because we've designed systems that we're not going to attack each other and hack each other to death uh, out of those systems. What What about you mentioned bandwidth? What do we need to do? When I look around the world, you look at parts of Europe, but especially. East Asia, the bandwidth is 10x hours and it's a quarter of the price. What are we doing wrong? I don't know about you, but I sit in my flat in New York and I can't get the internet <laughs> and it's it's dropping and it's miserable service. And then, of course, uh, cell we phones ju- also. We just had the attorney general file a lawsuit saying that uh, that the uh, speed uh, um, that is advertised uh, is phony. And mm-hmm. I, I I hope they call me to testify <laughs> because this is ridiculous. But. Americans stopped wanting to pay for things because we were given this line somehow that uh, government can't make any of these investments, so we shouldn't pay taxes. Uh, We've ended up with decrepit infrastructure. Uh, In most of these other countries, uh, these are partly uh, public at least, if not uh, wholly public. Uh, At least they're regulated. That's the other thing we have is don't regulate anything. Another crazy crazy idea. How about just minimum standards? You go to Europe, I could be in a farm in the middle of nowhere and I get five bars on on the phone in New York City with Verizon, which is – Someone described Verizon Wireless as the tallest midget. They're all terrible. <laughs> Verizon is the best. You lose calls in the middle of Manhattan. It's it's astonishing. Why, forget regulation. Why isn't there at least minimum mandated standards that if you want to use the public airways or if you want to be granted a temporary monopoly to run run broadband – that you have to meet these standards. Basically, because these companies are more powerful than the politicians who just stand at the side and take handouts from them. And uh, and then we get the line of uh, let the companies run everything and we end up with monopolies all over the place that are underperforming. So I, I can fetch about about bad internet and, and mobile service I all day. Get, I could not make a phone call for several minutes this morning in New York. I just it, could not It's shocking, the isn't bars. it? <laughs> we have been speaking with Professor Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia University, 
author most recently of Building the New American Economy. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. If you're having a business dispute, the process can be slow and drawn out, especially if you rely on litigation in the courts. You can wait for years before your case is resolved, and the longer your case proceeds, the more your case can cost. Not with the American Arbitration Association. Arbitration or mediation with the American Arbitration Association is faster. In fact, nearly 50% of our cases settle prior to hearings. ADR.org. Resolve faster. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Professor Sachs. Well, I, I honestly don't know what to call you. You you don't seem like a Jeffrey to me. Ah, I am. I've always been. Jeff, Jeffrey, Professor Sachs. I, either way, I like them all. So um, thank you for doing this. This is really fascinating stuff. Uh, we've been talking um, within my office about the sustainability issues and ESG questions. And the old argument was... Listen, investing is hard enough. Put your money to work. Don't set any disadvantages to yourself. And at the other end of the tunnel, take your profits and deploy it to whatever entities you think support your values. That isn't the case anymore. There isn't a disadvantage investing sustainably. And some studies have suggested that uh, companies with uh, broad women representation in the boardroom do better than the average company, companies with a, a more diverse workplace, companies that have social responsibility for whatever reason. Maybe it means that they've checked off all their other boxes and this is the last thing, or they don't have liability for giant oil spills and the like. What do you look at when you when you think about sustainable investing? I think right now, uh, if you look at the divestment campaign, for example, on uh, fossil fuels, uh, if uh, more university endowments had heeded that call five years ago, they would have saved a lot of money mm -hmm. because in the interim, there's been a sharp fall of oil prices and for a reason that's now understood to be a long-term decline which is that we really are shifting from the use of hydrocarbons to renewable energy over time. It's and become it, cost competitive. As I talk to uh, executives in major uh, oil companies, they say, we're not undertaking any more projects where the marginal cost is more than $40 a barrel. Really? And it, yes. And it may be uh, below that because they say, we know that there's a huge backstop in the Middle East. And we don't want to get caught in uh, that overhang of massive amounts of reserves when we know that a lot of reserves are going to have to be stranded in the long term. So why should we be investing at $60, $70, $80 marginal cost? And coal is the same way. Uh, yes, that was a campaign that started for pollution and climate control. But if you had heeded it, uh, you would have avoided investing in bankrupt companies. They, made a, they took on a lot of debt. They did a lot of bad... Mergers and acquisitions. And we don't need- Coal killed itself. It wasn't destroyed by regulations. Well, coal is going to be phased out over time, even though there's a lot of it. It's either so dirty or so carbon intensive that 
investors are not going to invest in new coal-fired power plants, and regulators are not going to allow them to be built. You watch the line of coal plants going from the upper left to the lower right, and natural gas plants, which is still, of all the carbon-based fuels, the cleanest, at least on the emission end. There are questions about how much methane natural gas releases when you're when you're drilling it, but those two lines are, are have passed each other. We used to be majority coal generation for electricity, and I think that recently it's either about to cross or recently crossed, and we will be generating the majority of our electricity from natural gas, and coal is going to be a footnote eventually. I think that's right, but I would say that the next crossing lines will be gas and renewables because the gas is going to be phased out and the renewables are really going to be phased in. And there are a lot of breakthroughs, especially offshore wind, that's going to come uh, very soon. And I think the integration of electric vehicles and intermittent renewable energy is going to be a very big thing as well, because we're going to have fleets of uh, tens uh, of millions of uh, battery, battery, smart batteries around mm. that carry us from place to place, but also our balancers of the grid. And so once we start with the electrification of personal mobility, that also is going to accelerate dramatically the shift to basically intermittent renewable energy. The, the whole genius of Tesla having the auto manufacturer, the battery plant, and the solar plant in one is right now your Tesla emissions depend on where you live. If you're in the Northwest, well, your emissions are zero because it's hydrocarbon. If it's part of the Midwest and the Northeast, well, then it, your Tesla is emitting coal emissions. And in much of the rest of the country, it's natural gas. So having a, an end-to-end, -end, the while, while the sun is shining, you're storing energy in a battery, and at night you're charging the car up with essentially solar means that is truly a zero emissions vehicle. And Elon, uh, Elon Musk uh, is telling his friends and he's told me that uh, he's got uh, President Trump's ear and uh, President Trump's interested in building out solar. We'll see. Boy, really? I hope uh, Elon has the president's ear. Uh, he's putting some effort into it because that would be a breakthrough. That would enable us to get behind uh, a Trump infrastructure plan if it's really sustainable infrastructure. When, when you look at certain companies that you wouldn't think of as green or cutting edge or left of center, in many states, Walmart is the single biggest producer of solar energy. They have these giant facilities, warehouses and stores, mostly below the Mason-Dixon line, filled with these huge flat roofs. Why wouldn't you go solar? And the cost now is, is really competitive. We're seeing a lot of surprises. Uh, as as uh, I mentioned, uh, we have uh, Statoil becoming a great champion of offshore wind. And other companies, uh, I know a lot of the European oil companies uh, are going in that direction as well. I wish, frankly, in our own country... We'd see Chevron, ExxonMobil, the Coke industries also realizing, get out of the 20th century At least diversify. Get into the 21st century. Come on, guys. What's amazing is I was in Berlin not too long ago, and when you're flying into Germany and you look down, um, which I always love to do when I, when I travel to um, different parts of the world, and I'm astonished at the amount of it's a farm and then a wind farm and then a cattle farm and then a wind farm. You fly into Frankfurt or you fly into Berlin 
and half the countryside are these giant wind farms. I've never seen that. Rarely, occasionally, you'll see a wind farm here or there. Same thing in, in uh, Italy, parts of the coast. You see all these wind on land on top of these big cliffs. We are way, way behind when it comes to wind. And GE is a huge manufacturer of wind turbines. Yeah, I think here we're stuck uh, in the lobbying. Uh, basically, the uh, Chamber of Commerce and the American Petroleum Institute, the Koch brothers and uh, ExxonMobil and Chevron have really held the United States back from the 21st century so far. And it's a small number of very powerful actors, but a lot of companies know that that's the past, not the future. It just seems that they want to squeeze out one last bit of, uh, of funding from, uh, from hydrocarbons. But what worries me is if we start putting tr billions and billions more into new pipelines and so forth, that's just money down the drain. Uh, that that's will... not federal money, though. Isn't that paid for by um, – I was on the impression that those pipelines are – funded private sector well some of it will just be private bankruptcies <laughs> Absolutely. well better listen you know what you sometimes have to make your bet and if you take the loss hopefully when there's an, a spill or some you know uh, third-party externality it shouldn't be thrown off onto onto those third parties those externalities should stay with the investors and not go to the taxpayers. That's correct. I just hope that uh, Wall Street's, you know, I think they should be smart enough not to underwrite uh, this kind of junk because uh, these are just bad investments. So that's interesting. When, when we look around at the rest of the sustainability questions, uh, what else is driving the technology? What is driving the investment um, further, is it simply uh, what what Professor Mayor Statman said? There's a utilitarian function of investing, and then there's an expressive, uh, emotional side of investing. Is it merely people wanting to feel good about their investments, or is there a credible thesis that this is the future? I think the only one that really makes a difference in the end is the latter. That uh, this is what our future should look like, and that takes people moving beyond their very narrow uh, world of comfort and trying to understand uh, the science of climate change or the future of technology. And if they do, we're going to get to the right place much faster than people imagine right now. It's interesting that uh, a lot of the Republican grandees in the last few days have said, we need a carbon tax. Yes, uh, that was stunning. Yeah, they're Because they've been fighting that for how long now? Exactly. And that was uh, very straightforward. And some of the, the leading uh, members and thinkers of the party, and they're breaking the taboo. But when I talk- Because that's really a Republican, if you think about it, it's a market-based solution to an issue of climate change, you would think that would be right in their wheelhouse. When you talk to a member of Congress, especially a Republican member, there's just one uh, thing that's on their mind, Re which is the Koch brothers. Oh. Uh, and they're, they're afraid. Either they're, really? they're getting the funding from them or they're afraid of the Koch brothers financing an opponent in the next right. uh, primary. Well, they've been, um, I forgot the term, uh, where, where they get primaried. Yeah, and uh, uh, someone with who's been in Congress for four or eight terms loses because someone outflanks him to the right with a lot of money. Used to be they were sort of uh, flaky candidates. Now they're well-funded, deep-pocketed uh, 
candidates. That's the story. And uh, those two who have a lot of wealth and are ready to spend it uh, have uh, oil interests. And uh, if they instead had wind interests, believe me, we'd have the fastest buildup of wind power in any country in world history. One, one would think strictly from a diversification perspective, you don't want all your, your chickens in, in one basket. You want to be diversified. Look, even Saudi Aramco is diversified. Right, right. They, even they the, are building uh, solar energy. and uh, The biggest oil reserves in the world. Exactly. Uh, is that not a giant hint? All right, let me switch a little bit and talk about, um, you, you had ref- referenced earlier the transportation grid um, and smart factors with that. Give us a little details what what you're referencing with that. Because what I think of as smart grid, I'm not sure if I'm thinking of the same thing you are. First, in the cities, you know, I'm a a proud New Yorker that owns zero automobiles, and I love it. Uh, I love the fact that we can walk, uh, take uh, the subway, Mm -hmm. uh, have public uh, transport, or if if I need to, uh, I can call an Uber. Uh, I can share the vehicle, uh, hail a taxi. This is the way to go in general, uh, which is that uh, I think car ownership is really going to plummet and sharing of vehicles, which is, of course, a much more effective use of the capital. It's not just sitting 95% of the time in right. a parking lot. It's on the road. Uh, that's going to come uh, to to be the predominant way that we use vehicles. If you look, then, if then, you look at the Uber, I think it's their 10 or their 20-year plan, they're anticipating nobody owning cars and they have a multi-million car fleet of self-driving vehicles. This is exactly right. And uh, what they're doing in Pittsburgh with Carnegie Mellon is absolutely uh, the way that that things are going to go, which is uh, get the driver out of there, redesign, reconfigure our traffic flows so that self-driving vehicles are acceptable and are safe. Uh, And I think we're pretty close to doing that as well. And um, this is going to be tremendous saving, not only of carbon emissions, but of money per se uh, of uh, the cost of vehicles, because the automobile was was the biggest ticket item for households, uh, perhaps uh, other than uh, their residents. Um, and it's not going to be that way in the future. And young people don't want to own cars anymore. And they're right, because uh, we should be in a way that they share when they need them. And, and uh, that's that. I, I only have you for a few minutes longer, so before I we run out of time, I want to jump to my, my favorite questions that I ask all my guests. Um, so you undergrad, you were, you were Harvard undergrad, Harvard master's, Harvard doctorate, is yep, that right? that's it. So let, let's talk a little bit about your mentors. Who, who were your mentors? Uh, my advisor was Marty Feldstein, uh, and uh, you could do worse. I, I uh, <laughs> had uh, had very good education, uh, and uh, when you're uh, at Harvard, very lucky you go up and down uh, the uh, the Mass Ave to go to MIT. So Paul Samuelson and oh, Robert really? Solo and Franco Modigliani and other Nobel laureates uh, were there. <laughs> and at Harvard, uh, I was able to uh, meet the giants like uh, Simon Kuznets, who basically invented uh, national income accounts and, and development economics. Alexander Gershenkron, one of the greatest historians uh, of uh, world economy. And, you know, as I uh, have aged, (laughs) I appreciate all those greats more and more because they uh, 
they imbued certain ideas uh, that at the time, you know, maybe weren't the fanciest theories, but were the kind of deep mm. understanding of uh, what is this field and what does it mean to understand an economy that uh, decades later, uh, really, for me, was the greatest part of this education. And um, let's talk a little bit about books. We, we, we referenced a few briefly. What are some of your favorite books? What, what are you reading now, and, and what sort of books do you enjoy? If you saw my house or my office, uh, I have about, uh, I think it's about 15,000 volumes. Mm-hmm. So I my wife says I'm just transferring Barnes & Noble volume by volume right. to the house. As they close stores, uh, exactly. they move the- uh, I love books. I'm generally reading uh, 10 or 15 books at a time, meaning that I read a few pages of one, few pages. Mm-hmm. I love history. I love reading about technology. I love philosophy. I'm reading a lot of uh, neuroscience these days mm-hmm. uh, because basically- we're at the cutting edge of knowledge, and uh, a book is the way to uh, join someone who really knows what they're doing uh, in, into uh, peering into the future. So I just have a, a great time uh, in uh, trying to understand where we're heading by reading a great book that's at the cutting edge. The phrase I heard recently is deep generalist, which seems like a contradiction in terms. But really, that's what you're describing. I love it. Uh, it's very frustrating because <laughs> the, the the ripples of knowledge are much faster than you can keep up sure. with them. But I, I keep pretending to try. <laughs> so so we mentioned earlier the box, how the shipping container made the world smaller and the economy bigger. I have to ask you about a book that is so right in your sweet spot. Did you ever read Windfall, The Booming Business of Global Warming by Mackenzie Funk? No. <laughs> it's I highly recommend okay, very it. Very good. Because it basically starts with the theme this isn't a debate on global warming. This is let's follow the follow the money and see what's happening. Well, that is absolutely the right approach. And, because, and that's why I said yeah. it's it's so right in your sweet spot. And then a previous guest was Arun Sundarajan at NYU and he wrote a book. The Sharing Economy, The End of Employment, and the Rise of Crowd-Based Capitalism. Of course, I, I've read that one. So I found that to be a fascinating conversation. Absolutely. Right, what you're talking about, Uber and Lyft. Tell me, uh, give me a couple of books that you're reading currently that you're really enjoying. I'm rereading Aristotle, so I would oh, encourage really? everybody to read the Nicomachean Ethics. You know, it's very okay, interesting. It's true. It's 2,300 years old, uh, but it deserves to be on the bestseller mm-hmm. list. Basically, it is uh, Aristotle's idea about what is a virtuous life and how can we have a virtuous society. And I think that that is a pretty darn good vision that uh, has withstood the test of 23 centuries. Funny you said that. I'm, I'm reading Meditations. By there you go, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, and it, it's one of those things that you're not going to sit down and plow through it on a beach, but you pick it up, you read five or ten pages, and you have to stop and say, that's really interesting. And it, it's really wonderful because, uh, you know, the, the ancient Greeks, this was the first time they were thinking the biggest thoughts, and some of them got such deep truths that yeah, they got almost uh, to— uh, But it's and, thousands of years old, exactly. and it, it shows you that Yeah, that's really a, a great book, uh, The Meditations. Um, give me one more. By the way, the single biggest email request I get from listeners is, hey— Get me a few book recommendations from your um, your guests. They're also accomplished. They're also knowledgeable. 
I love to rely on uh, on on those sorts of folks' recommendations. So I'll, I hope it's not too cheeky to say, please have a look at my book. It's really short. Uh, and, so and I would I- say I haven't finished this, but I read two of your books, and I'm trying to remember. You've written so many; it's tough to keep all the titles straight. Um, the sustainability book from 05? Uh, well, uh, The Age of Sustainable Development is a, a recent Price of book. Civilization. Price, Price of Civilization, good. That, that's the one that I think is really fascinating because you were a bit ahead of the curve laying out a lot of the problems that we face today. Well, I had watched the problems build. I travel a lot, so I see other countries that are working better than ours. And I'm trying to share some of, uh, some of that, uh, uh, what I'm seeing as well. So let's talk about what happens next. We, we've discussed the rise of popul- populism around the world. It's not just a U.S. phenomena. Uh, it's, it's France, it's Italy, it's uh, not only England, but possibly Germany. What is the next political shift that's, that's going to take place? We're really at a knife edge right now because uh, if the world becomes a, a battle of strongmen uh, and uh, it could go that way, it's really dangerous. If, on the other hand, uh, people who are really doing serious and leading things in the world tell the Donald Trumps and others, cool it. Uh, we don't want to blow apart the world economy. We don't want to start new wars. We want to actually solve problems. Then we can absolutely go in in the good direction. And I think that we're at a shaky moment right now. We don't know which way it's going, uh, but uh, we've seen just in the last few days that some of the uh, really irresponsible initial actions of uh, Trump are being walked back. For example, uh, Trump came in, tried to stir up things with China, mm-hmm. uh, took the phone call with Taiwan, said <laughs> one China policy is up for grabs. Yesterday in his call with the President Xi Jinping, he said, no, 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 we subscribe to the one China policy. I say, thanks, God. How, the- how much of this is just a guy who's never held elected office, never been really involved with government? It's going to take a while. I'm I, I'm being giving yeah. the benefit of the doubt. Isn't it going to take a while for him to kind of get his legs under him and figure out, hey, how do these levers of of power actually work? Well, you know, I think the most worrisome thing is uh, these are complicated issues. These are not uh, Twitter susceptible issues. And either he gets serious or we're in trouble. You Uh, notice that yesterday he uh, or a few days ago, he slammed Nordstrom for dropping his daughter's line, and Nordstrom's stock rose 5%. So maybe there's a half-life on the bully pulpit of trying to scare CEOs of companies by using Twitter. I think one thing in our world is everything so fast yes. uh, that uh, and everything uh, ages so quickly that uh, maybe the Twitter play is over. Uh, today, uh, uh, the Financial Times uh, has run a story saying that they've looked at all the uh, tweets uh, against businesses and there really is no impact on shares. There's a and, little wobble and then it just goes exactly. back to what it was Exactly. And I doing. think, uh, you know, maybe everyone's saying, okay, that's Donald in the middle of the night. Uh, and it's disconcerting. Oh, that, that, that's the old, but maybe that's already passe. That's the old stuff. It, uh, it and could if be. that is, that would be good because that is no way to run the U.S. government. My suspicion is there are certain leaders who are very detail oriented, and others who just want to plant a flag of victory and let others fill in 
Um, the details, my suspicion, the tax reform is a perfect example. I suspect he wants a victory. It doesn't matter what the victory is. And a lot of what he's going to do is just going to defer to people like Paul Ryan and say, give me some corporate tax reform, get it done. Yeah, I win and move on to the next. But there, I think there's really one huge distinction that I would emphasize, which is that we've had for years now government by lobby behind sure. closed doors in Washington. That was true of the Obama administration. It was true of, uh, of uh, Bush before him. That kind of governance also does not work. Uh, what we need actually is some expertise right now. We need the engineers. We need mm -hmm. the technologists. We need people who are going to look at the budget, not from a partisan point of view, but from a 20-year point of view. And we don't have that yet. And, you know, maybe it's better than a tweet uh, to have uh, Congress <laughs> do it, but it's not good enough to have the lobbyists write our legislation. We need serious national deliberation right now. It has to be in the open. And instead of having uh, basically uh, illiterate uh, or uh, uh, scientifically illiterate uh, politicians uh, opine about things like climate change, we've got a nation of the world's top scientists and engineers. And they're the ones that should be empowered right now to be helping to give solutions and a way forward. Let, let me ask you a question that that responds to that. What do you make of this sort of drumbeat against expertise? And I don't mean just climate change, but we've seen a sort of uh, conflation between pundits and talking heads and actual engineers, technologists, scientists, uh, it looks like we're lumping together people who really don't know but are happy to talk about it with people who do know and may not be talking about it as much as they should. I talked about climate change a few days ago in an interview and then, of course, got a irate a barrage of emails. And so I answered one of them and mm -hmm. somebody made charges, you ignorant guy, don't you know that so-and-so is true uh, of, of some uh, completely false thing? And I wrote back, I said, oh, that's interesting. Can you give me a citation for that? It's the greatest and, response. And, and uh, he uh, wrote back uh, immediately with the website. I looked at the website. It was actually quite interesting. It was a real website, completely phony. Right. Uh, and then uh, it, Fake news. it cited an institute in California. So I of course, never heard of it. I uh, Googled it. It doesn't exist. So I wrote back to the guy. I said, can you give me the address of this institute? This doesn't exist. And there were footnotes. And if you followed the footnote, it was to absolutely non-existent journals. So this is, it is a problem because it's like artificial intelligence. It's an alternative world. Artificial people, unintelligence. People, people live in it. Yeah. And they're bombarded by it. And I said to the guy finally in frustration because I was trying, you know, being very polite and back and forth. And it was. Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, you have better things to do with your time no, because on behalf of humanity than talking to one bubbled. I'm trying to understand, though. And, and so I said to him, finally, why don't you go to a local, you know, your local college or university? He said, I tried that. They're filled with the same nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, they, what are you going to do? Well, you know, there have been studies that have shown that certain people live in a news bubble 
That's really not news. And it's not just that they're uninformed. It's worse. They're misinformed. And democracy requires an informed electorate. And that seems to be a big problem. Especially we live in a time of expert systems of super sophisticated transport, communications, uh, power generation. We have 7.5 billion people on the planet that need to be fed to safe water, public health every day. That requires tremendous knowledge and expertise. And if we absolutely close off to the expertise, we're doomed. There's no way we survive that. So this is really a major thing. But our government is out of that business because it's been lobbyists 24-7. And I'm not just talking about right now. I'm talking about during the Obama period. And I'm talking about before This is that. a multi-decade problem. And we have to get out of it quickly. And let me get to my um, last few and favorite questions. So when you're not uh, at work, what do you do to relax? Uh, what do you do to kick back? I'm at work. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask, uh, what, what do you do to exercise? What do you do to stay mentally or physically fit? Uh, Another I, reader question, by the way. Well, I mean, uh, New York is the perfect place for that because I walk, walk I everywhere. walk, I walk and I love it. I, since I got the Fitbit, people don't believe me. I'm doing 15 and 20,000 steps oh, a day. And excellent. It's, it's I walk from here down to my office. Yep. It's 30 blocks. Excellent. That's, uh, that, that's what that is. So you work with a lot of students, a lot of millennials. If someone came to you and said, I'm interested in a career as becoming an economist, what sort of advice would you would you give them? I always say whatever they're interested in, stay with your interests. Don't do it for the money. Remember why you did it and be serious because you'll you'll love it in the end. So whether it's public health, whether it's engineering, whether it's business, there's enough for people to enjoy their lives. But the worst reason is, oh, I'm going to go make money. I know it's awful and then I'll do something later. That's That's a terrible mistake. And my final uh, and favorite question, what is it that you know about the world of macroeconomics today that you wish you knew 30 years ago? Everything. <laughs> really? No, I, I mean, I, I knew a bit then, but God, I've been on a learning curve and it's wonderful. Uh, and I feel that that is uh, so much fun, how to put together the macroeconomics with culture, society, climate. It's the interconnectedness which has really grown on me over over the decades uh, through the real life that our problems don't come packaged in narrow packages. They come mm -hmm. as broad as the world is. And so we better understand those interconnections. We have been speaking with Professor Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia University. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and you could see any of the other 132 or so such conversations. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank my recording engineer, Medina. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Mike Batnick is our uh, director of research. We love your comment, suggestions, and feedback. Please write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org.